Joshua chapter 14. It's a great privilege to me to be part of a church who's existed for 120 years and who has preached the gospel truth for 120 years. That's not a small thing. Uh, it's real easy for a church or a Christian college uh, or a seminary to drift away from the truth. It's not so easy to stay put, and uh, that's a great privilege. As I thought about this wonderful occasion and, and what I would like it to mean to us, I thought of the person of Caleb, as I mentioned earlier. And I want to read to you from Joshua 14, starting in verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. Just to give you the setting, if you're not familiar with this, Joshua is the one who led the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land and conquered it, and then they divided it up for the tribes. So that's the point in Israel's history where we are. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance." and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, Caleb says, and now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke his word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war. Both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, or the giants were there. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron, that's the place, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kerjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Caleb is for us today an example of, of progress. And I believe the key verse for us is in verse 12, when it says, Now therefore give me this mountain... Caleb was 85 years old, but he was promise-driven. God said to him through Moses, wherever you walked, that's going to be your land. 
And he walked where the giants walked. Now, think about this. If you're a giant, now the Goliath, the giant that David fought, he was nine feet tall. So that would make him about as tall as I am, only from here to the floor. Great big giant of a man. Now, if you're a giant, which land do you live in? Do you remember the old joke about the, where does the 500-pound canary sit? Anywhere he wants to. Where would you typically go? The best land. The best land. Caleb walked through that land. Maybe that's where they cut that big cluster of grapes that it took two guys to carry on a pole. And he said, that's where I want to go. He didn't come back like the rest of them going, oh, we're, we're like grasshoppers compared to those people. He said, I want that land. And Moses said, you're going to get it. He was 40 years old at the time. Now, I was 49 this week. And nine years after 40 isn't that long. But I can't imagine getting to 85 and saying, I'm ready to go against the giants. But that's what Caleb did. He had a promise from God. Caleb could have easily said, I have done my time. I walked in that wilderness for 40 years and I didn't deserve it. I'm the guy who was faithful. Me and Joshua, we were faithful. And we still had to wander in that wilderness and bury all those people who wouldn't believe God. And now I'm telling you what, it's my turn. I'm taking it easy. You go out there and get that land and then you give it to me. He didn't say that though, did he? He said, I'm ready to go. I think Caleb was ready to go for 45 years. We've been ready to go for three years with an elevator. <laughs> Caleb was promise-driven. God said he would give us the promised land, and I want it now. What does God promise to us? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God says you can find your life. Numbers of years ago when I was younger, it used to be a big thing. People said, I have to, have to find myself. Maybe they'd go to Europe and bum around for a while. Maybe they'd go to Haight-Ashbury. They'd go wherever. I've got to find myself. God says, I'll help you find yourself. Just lay down your life and take up the yoke of Christ. It's a promise to us. I think I, heard, I think I heard that's what Scott said this morning. He said, the last five years that I've been living for the Lord have been the best five years of my life, and I wish they were all that way. That's what God promises to us. But there's some giants to fight if you're going to have that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What a great promise of God. Listen to this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works. Jesus said you can do something greater than he did. How is that possible? You know how it's possible? Try to get your theological mind around this now. Nobody was ever born again while Jesus was on the earth. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Dave. 
I know the thief on the cross went to heaven. I didn't say people couldn't be believers and go on to paradise as an Old Testament saint. But it wasn't until Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and then gave the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that salvation was fully available to us in terms of what we know as being born again. It's not po- it was not possible until that day of Pentecost when Jesus was gone that you could go to somebody and say, let me tell you the truth of the gospel and you could share about Christ and they could believe on Him and have their lives changed from the inside out. That's a tremendous thing. That's why Jesus came. He said, you're going to do some great things. He was excited for these guys. Greater works because I go to my Father. And then, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified. If you ask, I will do it. What tremendous promises. And then Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples. We know that part real familiarly as the Great Commission, Go out and make disciples in the whole world. But look what he says there. And lo, I am with you always. What did Caleb say when he was approaching this promise of taking taking his land? He says, it may be that God will be with us. Caleb didn't know for a fact that God would be with him, but we know for a fact God will be with us. Caleb was promise-driven. Look at Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the day of Pentecost I was talking about. Every Christian, who, every person who accepts Christ as their Savior gets that power now. And what does he say? You're going to have power and you'll be my witness. It's a promise to us. Caleb was promise-driven. He said, God made a promise to me. And Caleb was willing to risk his life to get the fulfillment of the promise. What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to risk to see God's work? That, that's what he calls us to. Are we, willing, are we willing to part with our money? Are we willing to part with our time? I think these days time is more precious than money to a lot of people. I don't know if the world is a busier place than it used to be. Are you willing to part with your time? Are you willing to let go of your sin? Letting go of sin is a hard sacrifice, but God calls us to do it in order to receive the promises that he's put before us. Caleb was promise-driven. You know, when we look around at the church building, you know, we've just finished a project, and if you didn't notice, there's some work going on right back there. And actually, we're set to launch another project. And don't be surprised if we come to you and say, folks, we need $5,000 to put that beam across there and get rid of that wall and fix that place up. Are you willing to trust the Lord more. Caleb had already wholly followed the Lord. He didn't have anything to apologize for. But he said, now. It's like, it's like his first 85 years were just preparatory for what was coming ahead. And no doubt the greatest work of Caleb was ahead of him. We've had 120 years here. Great years. You saw that there were times when the church had 300 people. That they were sitting shoulder to shoulder. Are you willing to give up your personal space and sit shoulder to shoulder? I mean, what a small sacrifice. The church has had great eras. church has had some great lows. Caleb was promise-driven. And then Caleb was not only promise-driven, but he was God-emboldened. 
Listen, let's, let's look back at, at Numbers, at the story. The, the story of Caleb and Joshua, when it first happened, is in Numbers 13 and 14. You can read that later on. But here's the highlights. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, this big cluster of grapes. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. We saw the giants there. Did you see their eyes popping out of their head? You know, just the greatest thing and yet the most the scariest thing. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. Caleb was one of the 12 spies. Joshua was another leader. But all of the others gave a bad report. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land in which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. But here's what Caleb said. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Caleb was not bold in his own human strength. He was God-emboldened. Now, there are some aspects of the church today in which we know beyond a shadow of doubt God is with us. For instance, is there any doubt that God wants us to win people to the Lord? Is there any doubt? Oh, come on. Come on. Is there any doubt that God wants us to win people to the Lord? Is there any doubt that God wants us to help people grow up in Christ? Is there any doubt that God wants us to give a positive witness to the community of what Christ is like through our unity and love? That's right. We shouldn't have to have a committee meeting to decide if we're going to love one another. And so Caleb said, now in Caleb's situation, he didn't know for a fact how it would work out. But he knew God wanted them in the promised land somehow. We know for a fact God wants some things. And then there are other things we have to try to perceive his will about. We, we spent... Oh, I don't know, close to three years in the preparatory phase for the elevator. Once we, once we got to a certain stage, we took a year to actually, you know, come to find out what it'll cost and do all of our homework. And then we came to you and one of the greatest business meetings I've ever been in. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I know is going to make the rest of the business meetings hard. Do you know when we voted to build the elevator, not one person said, how are we going to pay for it? Nobody. Nobody said, we, we said we could borrow the money from the home mission. Nobody said, what will the payments be? Now, I don't know how that happened. Maybe you're all just not too bright. <laughs> I like to think that you were, by that point, saying, let's go, let's do this thing. We need this. There's no doubt about it. By that time, we said, hey, the Lord is delighting in this. This is what God wants us to do. We're moving ahead. And by God's grace, here we are, finally. We thought it would never get done, but it has. And we didn't know how we were going to pay for it, but we are paying for it. He was emboldened by God. Is your God small or big? Does Good for you. Good for you, girl. Yeah. Come here. Oh, it was you. Oh, Jedediah, I should have known it would be you. Give me, give me some love. Give me some love. Thanks, man. 
What did Jesus say about our faith? We need to have faith like a child. Do you really think God can do something here? If God is big, and He is, if He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all He's got to do is sell a few and we're in good shape. But if He is some remote reality in our life, we're not going to step out on faith. He was emboldened by God. When I hear him say, it, well, it may be that God will be with me, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends who went into the fiery furnace. They, they looked the king right in the eye. The king wanted them to bow down to worship an idol. And they said, King, we don't know if God will deliver us. We know he's able to deliver us. And so we want you to know one thing. We're not bound down to your idol. We'll go, and if God delivers us, great. And if he doesn't, that's great too. They just said, we're going. That is a real attitude of trusting God. Caleb went on to say, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. This sounds like a contemporary sports journalism. We're going to eat them alive. That's what it's kind of... Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. What has God said that should embolden us? This is the passage that Chuck read earlier. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. You are a small rock, but on this big rock of the confession of Jesus as Savior and Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. May I say the gates of City Hall will not prevail against it? May I say the liberals in our country will not prevail against it? May I say that we, will, we can be a church and move forward with God no matter what happens around us. Now there may come some changes someday when maybe we can't own a building, but we can still be a church because this is the building. We are the church. Caleb was God emboldened. I'm so blessed to be part of a congregation that's willing to take risks. We took a risk when we started this elevator project. Uh, we took a risk in January when we said, you know, and, and, and again, I, I, I've never been part of meetings like this. When I sat with the deacons and Glenn brought the, the recommendation or the, the not, not just the research on the budget. And he says, if we're going to keep going with Pastor Larry and the elevator, it's going to take a 40% increase in our giving. And we all looked at that and went, oh, man. Nobody said a word because nobody needed to. We were all thinking the same thing. You can't do that. That can't be done. We can't go to the church with that. And I think it was Chuck who just said, we just have to do this. And we said, yeah, we have to do this. And so we came to you and we said, this is crazy, but we think we have to do this. And, and, and we prayed and we voted and we moved ahead. And you know what? Pastor Larry has been getting his full salary for two months now. We've been paying for the elevator. 
and our bottom line has increased since the beginning of the year. <laughs> I think Glenn said it represents a 30% increase in our giving averaged out over the first three or four months, whatever we've had here, four months. Is it possible that God is not going to give us a miracle until we perceive his leading and step out to follow? I mean, when did Caleb conquer the land? Not sitting on the other side of the Jordan thinking about it. He stepped out and look what God did. You know, there's, there's a verse uh, later on uh, that says, they drove the Anakim out of the land. They drove them out. They didn't kill them all, but they drove them out. It, it was done. It came to a point where it was done. What did God say about these folks? Because these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully. I will bring him where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. I want to be like Caleb. I don't want to go through this life living meagerly in Christ. And in fact, I guess I would say I feel like I have been and we have been the last few years. What, what, a great, what great things God has done. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and I just want to look briefly here. At, as we would consider, what is the mountain that lies before us? I don't have a great big program to debut, you know, like the State of the Union speech or something where I say, well, here's the next ten things we need to do. I don't want to do that today. I want to look at Acts chapter 2 at the very beginning of the church and at the descriptor of the church and say, these are the mountains we need to be pursuing. Acts 2, verse 40. And I want to look at this as the pattern for our progress. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them. This is the first sermon of the church. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now here's a descriptor of what that church looked like. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and prayers. And I want to lay those four things before you today as the things that ought to challenge us as we would evaluate whether or not we are walking up the mountain, taking the mountain for the Lord. The first thing that they uh, persevered in, they, they were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. This, uh, the word doctrine just means teaching. Sometimes people get all wrapped up in the word doctrine because they think of dry, heavy theology, and that's not what it means. It's used throughout the scripture. It's the same root word as the word for disciple, and it means a teaching, and it refers to the content of the truth. And it means that these disciples were steadfast in studying the Bible and in, and in being taught the Bible. They were people of the word. You could put the word teaching or preaching in here. It would, it would mean virtually the same thing. But here, here is, here's a question for you, as you might say, okay, I want to be like Caleb. Do you value the Word of God enough 
to become capable of teaching the Word. Do you value the Word enough to become capable of teaching it, at least to your family? We all know that, that uh, or we should know, that we, we, have, we chose a path a couple, three years ago where we said our church is going to be known for clear, passionate, life-changing Bible teaching and preaching. But it's not enough that it comes from this pulpit. If God is going to use us to see more people saved, which we know He wants, and to see more people become disciples, which we know He wants, we are going to need more Sunday school teachers, more counselors, more small group leaders, more parents who can teach the Word to their children day by day by day by day. See, yeah, I can always teach, preach in the Sunday morning service, but who's going to populate all those Sunday school classes with all of those kids that are going to come to the Lord? Who's going to teach more adult classes as more adults come to the Lord? It's going to be you. Oh, Pastor Dave, ooh, well, that's not my gift. I didn't ask that, did I? <laughs> are you steadfast in the doctrine? Or are you a dabbler? Number two, they were steadfast in fellowship. We use the word fellowship to refer to when we go down to the basement and eat food and visit. And that is fellowship. But fellowship is more than that. Fellowship is essentially a committed relationship in the body of Christ that results in ministry. It's a committed, committed relationship in the body of Christ that results in ministry. The word fellowship, the actual Greek word, talks about connectedness and, and friends and togetherness, those kinds of things. Are you committed enough to the body of Christ that you will come to dinner even if it's beans and weenies? Because you're not there to eat. You're there to minister. And I got news for you. We're having beans and weenies for lunch today. If you think I'm joking, stick around. Folks, no matter what we do, no matter what the activity is, if it's a youth group outing, if it's a dinner downstairs, if it's coffee after church, if it's taking a trip to a Mariners game, no matter what it is, ministry ought to happen as we care for one another. It's not that we show up with three points in a poem and we're going to preach to one another. No. It's more, it's more so so-and-so tells me about their struggle and I'm, I'm here with the Word because I've been studious in the doctrine and I'm ready to share with them. That's what fellowship is about. It's committed relationship. It's us reaching out to Rolf Brulin after the death of his wife and saying, what can we do for you? He told me the greatest thing we could do for him is take some food off his hands because all of his neighbors are just deluging him with food. So we need to have the ministry of eating over at his house. <laughs> you got a phone, don't you? You got a prayer list, don't you? you? Fellowship. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' fellowship. Number three, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' worship. The phrase breaking of bread is used there. It's not talking about eating. It's talking about communion, what we call the Lord's Supper. The word communion emphasizes the relational aspect of it. 
the idea that we are related to Christ. When we, when we remember Jesus, it's us remembering Him. It's a relational element to our Christianity. That's what worship is about. It's about us recognizing God and thanking Him for all that He does for us. They continued steadfastly in worship. Worship is not just something we do before we preach. Years ago, that's what some preachers used to think. Well, we're going to sing for a little while because we can't preach for an hour. Hey, friends, if that's all the more worship means to you, then your relationship with God needs some serious work. It should be your joy to come and sing to God and, and tell Him thank you for what He's done. I know some of you can't sing. doesn't matter. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Nothing would bless me more than to hear some tone-deaf people belting it out. Not up here. But down there. <laughs> Even David had professional singers in his choir. You know what I'm saying? There's a place. But, but seriously, if, if, you, if you're one of those people who comes to church and says, well, I can't sing, and so you, know, you just kind of sit stone-faced. Hey, wait a minute. This is not about singing. It's about worship. It's about us recognizing God. It's about praying. It's about reading Scripture. It's about submitting to the Scripture. All of that is part of worship. Worship is important. And God willing, the, the, the quality and the creativity and all of that's going to increase as days go on in our church. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' worship. They also continue steadfastly in the apostles' prayer. I want to read to you some some bullet point notes from the seminar that Pastor Larry and I were at back in January from a pastor who has committed greatly to praying himself and to leading his church to pray. And as we would evaluate our prayer life and whether or not we are steadfast in our prayers, listen to these points. And I'm not going to read the scripture or, the, or even the references, but I have them and I'd be glad to give them to you. The more praying that is done by a church, the more unity and singleness of purpose that will exist. Is that worth praying for? The more praying that is done by a church, the more genuine love the people will have for God, for each other, and for the world. The more praying that the church does, the more people in the church will know God, and the greater the sense of His presence will be in their lives, especially as they gather corporately. The more praying that is done by a church, the more joy, confidence, security, faith, and peace they will experience. The more praying that is done by the church, the more God will work through the preaching of the pastor. He will become a powerful preacher. The more praying that is done by the church, the more the people will grow in spirituality. The more praying that is done by the church, the more boldness, courage, and passion the people will have to reach their lost friends and neighbors and relatives for Christ. The more praying that is done by the church, the more to the people of the church to do the work of the ministry. The more praying that is done by by a church, the less influence Satan will have on the people in the church and for those being prayed for outside the church. The more praying that is done by a church, the more opportunities they will be to serve the Lord and to be used by Him to advance the kingdom of God. The opportunities will come because God is opening doors and because of increased vision in the life of the pastor and lay people. The more praying that is done by a church, the stronger the marriages and family and the church will become. The more praying that is done by a church, the more money people will give. Have we been steadfast enough? Are you telling me we've prayed enough? Are you telling me there aren't things that we need to pray for more? Are you telling me there aren't loved ones who are not sitting here this morning who need to be prayed into the family of God? 
They were steadfast in the apostles' prayer. And what was the result of all this? Look at, look at Acts 2.47. They were praising God and having favor with the people. And the, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The result of all of this, the result of their steadfastness in these things was the growth of the church. You know, in our deacons' meetings, we don't sit and talk about how we can get more people in the church. We talk about how we can do those first four things better. Because I believe if we do those first four things better, growth will be the natural result. It's awful easy to get focused on growth as though that's the goal. It's our goal to get bigger. And that is not our goal. It's our goal to get better. And if we get better, God will bless and people will get saved. If you get more spiritual, you'll be more concerned for your neighbors. If we pray more, God will do more. For this summer, we are going to be combining our Wednesday prayer meeting, our Sunday evening worship, and our vacation Bible school into a single weekly Wednesday evening session. I'm going to preach like I do on Sunday nights. There will be some interaction. We're going to have a worship team that's going to be led by Scott Hubbard and some of the folks who are here on Sunday mornings. And there's opportunity for you to get involved in that worship team. And I'm going to preach, and we're going to sing, and then we're going to pray. And while we're preaching and singing and praying, Pastor Larry is going to be teaching the kids downstairs. Do you think we could be more steadfast? I think we could, and I think that's an opportunity for you to do so. We're going to decrease the hours that we're having meetings to increase the involvement. And I want to encourage you right now as you think about moving ahead like Caleb, in one of those things, one of the things that God might put on your heart that might be Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock starting on June 1st or the first Wednesday of June, whatever the date is. I was 45 years old, which is four years ago now, when I received my certification as a biblical counselor. And that was the end of a process of about 10 or 12 years of going to classes and studying and practicing and trying to trying to get better at something that that all pastors need to do and when I did that the man who mentored me who's the president of this national association he said something that just shocked me he said you know what most guys your age in the ministry 45 years old most guys your age are coasting coasting what's it mean to coast in the ministry is that like you know, I've been in Tuck Willow for 15 years. I could just preach all those sermons from those 15 years again. So I don't need to work now. I don't need to give effort now. I can just coast. Is that what he means? Is that, is, is, does he mean they're not trying to learn new skills and new methods and learn new songs or, or whatever? They're just coasting? If you knew that your pastor was coasting and not working hard in the ministry, would you say, that's great. You go, boy. You take it easy. We'll just keep writing them big fat checks every week. You just sit back, drink that Diet Pepsi, whatever, you know. No, you'd say, get the bum out of here. Get somebody who's going to work at it. Because none of us think that spiritual leaders should be taking it easy. I don't. So then is it okay for you to take it easy? Yeah. Pastors are supposed to work really hard so the rest of us can drink Diet Pepsi. Hey, folks, there's no room for any of us to be sitting still. 
Pastors shouldn't coast in their walk with the Lord and their service to Him, and neither should Christians. I am blessed to be part of a church that's 120 years old and has been willing to take some bold steps. And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Whatever God puts on your heart, however God puts it on your heart, I want to challenge you to be doing those things and moving ahead like Caleb. I've given you some scripture there to read and to meditate on. Numbers 13, 14, and Joshua 14. And just read the story of Caleb and say, God, help me to take a bold step of faith in response to your leading, whatever it might be. Help me to be part of a church who takes bold steps. Heavenly Father, thank you for Caleb. Thank you for this great example to us. Help us to trust you and believe in you so much that we step out and move forward and take whatever is the next mountain that you put in our path. Father, I thank you for, again for these 120 years, and I thank you for the mountains that have been conquered. I thank you for the ones we're celebrating today. Give us more. Help us to follow your lead. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.